So we're going to look at God's Word. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, we're going to look at God's Word together. We're actually in a little three-part series studying through just this one verse. A lot of times we'll study through big chunks of Scripture, uh, but we just thought this would be a wonderful opportunity for us to do a deep dive into one verse for three weeks. And this verse uh, has so much truth packed into each phrase that we're just doing a slow brew over this text for a few weeks. All right, here's our text. Last week we looked at that first phrase, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, and this week we press forward. So follow along as I read this one verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Oh God, meet us. Meet us by the power of your Holy Spirit as we look at this truth and we turn it. And would you enable us to see glorious things that change our lives, that change the way we live, the way that we relate to others, the way we relate to you. They fire our affections in a fresh way for you and help us to see your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a question I want us thinking about as we get started, and it's this. Do we want to know God deeply, or are we bored with God? Just think about that personally for a moment. Do, you, do we want God? Do we crave? Do we, as the psalmist would say, do we yearn and long for God, or are we bored with, with God? When we sing Truths like the ones that we were just singing a moment ago. Truths about the fact that we are loved by God through Christ forever. Does that create a collective wow response or does that create a collective yawn? Is the love of God just that massive of course? Well, I mean, what else is he going to do? Not love us, right? It's, it's, the, it's the global worldwide of course statement that doesn't register its life-changing impact in our lives, years ago, a friend of mine, he was talking to a room full of pastors, and he said, if the people in your congregations are lethargic in worship or apathetic spiritually, if worship is dry and lifeless, if their lives, if they're not passionate for the gospel and for the glory of Christ, if they, they don't manifest genuine burden for the world, for their community, for their neighbors. He said, don't rebuke them, show them the glory of God. I think what he was saying there is, is not that there's no place for biblical admonishment because the Bible's full of biblical admonishment. I think what he was saying is there's a root issue underneath that that you can't just yell it out. You can't just yell people free from spiritual lethargy. They have to see something. They have to see God as glorious as he really is. And when we see that, that's why Paul uses that language. He says, we behold him and we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we're transformed, we're changed by beholding. Not by being coached or pushed or prodded 
toward change. This is one of the, the Apostle Paul's chief concerns. He talks about this all the time. In Romans, you, you come to Romans, so you're walking through the book of Romans. This is Paul's magnum opus. This is him leading an expedition up Mount Everest theologically. This is the New Testament Everest. And he's leading you on this expedition, chapter one, two, three, and then he gets to the summit in chapter 11. And then he looks out at the peak of Everest. He looks out over 11 chapters of truth about the glory of God. And he just bursts out in song. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. It's just an explosion of doxology. He'll be back in a moment to talk about how it applies. But he just bursts out in song, in worship. Who can, who can search out this God's judgment? Who can understand his ways fully? For from him and through him and to him be glory. That's what happens when Paul looks out and sees. And then he says, in view of God's mercies in chapter 12, what do we do? There's this automatic response when we see how great and awesome God is. Why does Paul pray for the church the way that he does? It's an awesome thing that we get to actually listen in on the apostles' prayers. And this is what he prays for the church at Ephesus. That they may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height, and depth of God's love. Now, are we going to be able to plumb the depths of God's infinite love? The answer is no. But Paul says, may they try. <laughs> may they be able to deeply comprehend and just go further and further and further down. And friends, look, this, these truths are so massive that we're talking about last week and this week and next week. We will explore the depths of the love of God a billion years from now, and we still will not have reached the bottom. It will go further and further and further down. This repays reflection. This is a life-transforming reality. You, you look at, come back to 2 Corinthians. You think about Paul writing this letter to this particular congregation. This is a messed up church. This is a church where he puts out the communion elements before service, and it's real wine. And by the time all the church has come and they've actually begun the meeting, half the people are drunk because they've drunk all the communion elements. This is a messed up, this is not a perfect church. We go back there and sometimes assume, you know, back in the first century when the church was pure. Pure? Have you read this? They were nutcases back there, even at the very beginning. And yet Paul, he writes to this same people earlier in 1 Corinthians, and he talks about what they need to see the most. He says, what does Corinth need? Here's what he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light, this is the game changer, the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying what the people need to see every Sunday is God. We don't preach ourselves, we'll just get up here and just give you my own personal wisdom, my own personal apostolic thoughts. Paul's saying, no, what you need is to see someone way more awesome than the apostle Paul. He says, we don't preach ourselves, we preach Christ and him crucified. Paul is basically saying right there in that passage, I'm doing everything I can to stay out of the way. 
so that you can see the greatness and glory of God. That's the thing that really changes us. You behold him and you're changed. So clear all throughout the New Testament. That is really what this series is all about. It's about us looking into the face of God, the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and encountering him in the pages of his word. That's what the Bible is for. The Bible is God's self-revelation. You think about it. God, almost imagine it as this metaphor. You're inside the house. God is outside the house. The window is the Bible, and the Holy Spirit pulls up the shade. That's the dynamic of the Christian life. The Holy Spirit lifts the shade, and the, the window of the word lets us see the glory of God, and it's transforming to us. We can't be the same that we were before. So this whole series is about aiming at seeing the Christian life as a real, vibrant, now encounter, ongoing life with God Father, Son, and Spirit. In other words, if we hear what we're talking about these three weeks, then the end product is you and me leaning harder on him, trusting him more, obeying him more, more passionate for his glory, more obedient, banking on his promises. Whatever he says, we're believing it internally. It's firing the rest of our, our lives. So, so last week, it was a focus on God the, God the Son, And this week, it's a focus on God the Father and what's packed into these words about the love of God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. So three truths I've got for us to think about, about the love of God the Father. I would just say, grasping these truths will have a direct impact on your life and your purpose in life and your mission in life as a follower of Jesus. Number one, God's love is fierce. God's love is fierce. Go ahead and fill in that next point in your outline. We easily confuse God's love with indulgence. Easily confuse God's love with indulgence. God, the Father, is not the kind of, you know, child-centered parent who builds everything around his child's happiness and just makes all the orbits spin in their proper proportion and distance, right? Making sure everything orients around my comfort as his child and my happiness as his child. Listen, one of the deadly errors that circulates, particularly in the Bible Belt, deadly error that circulates in our part of the country is the idea that God doesn't care about our obedience, you know, he's just kind of flipping about it, you know, almost like the, the, the parent who comes over to your house and they bring their six-year-old, and the six-year-old is absolutely destroying the place, right? Just hopping from the kitchen counter to the table, rolling around, pulling the blinds, and, just, and, and the, the indulgent parent just kind of looks and says, huh, he's all boy, right? You know, can't rein him in. He's a holy terror. It's like, well, yeah, and he's actually destroying my home, <laughs> And that's a problem, right? God is not that indulgent parent who just kind of smiles and pats us on the head and looks at our rebellion and says, this is really no big deal. It's just you being you, right? He cares. He's jealous for us. It's not okay when you and I keep hitting the self-destruct button over and over and over. He comes in. He tears through the front door. He finds us. He says, that's going to destroy you. It's not okay. That's not cute, He cares, that's that's his love, that's the ferocity of God's love. He finds us and he rescues us from what's destroying us. You hear what the Apostle Paul says to the same church, 1 Corinthians chapter six, 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The reason he's asking the question is because apparently in the way that they're living, some of them don't. Don't you know this? We've talked about this before. Surely you know the unrighteous won't inherit. He goes on. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Note this. Here's a pivot point. And such were. That verb is vital. He's saying... That's what you used to be. You've been changed, he goes on to say. But you were washed from all that, right? You were sanctified. You were set apart. You were justified. You were accepted by God, brought close in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, think about this truth that's so clear in Scripture. Yes, he takes us as we are. Praise God we don't have to clean up before we come to Jesus. I'm so grateful for that truth. Yes, he takes us as we are, but he doesn't leave us the way we are. He's not done. He's just beginning a transformation process. That leads to the next point. In your notes, God's holy love claims every part of your life. His holy love claims every part of your life. We don't have a compartmentalized faith where Jesus gets the broom closet, where we, do our, we say our prayers, right? Now, he gets the house. He gets the keys. He gets the car. He gets the marriage. He gets, he gets the money, the wallet, the calendar. He gets it all. He gets everything, right? He, Jesus says, he just makes it so clear. You, you can't worship God and money. And how clear could you possibly be? You can't serve two masters. It's not gonna happen. You can't worship God and money. In other words, the growth of greed in our hearts is a problem. It's not okay. It's a problem. God is not okay with us looking at sensual images. That's a problem. God has an agenda for our eyes. He has an agenda for our words, our mouth, our speech, our relationships. When I say that, that's not us you know, flirting with legalism because we're talking about things that we're not supposed to do. It's just quoting scripture. The grace of God, Titus chapter two, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and unrighteousness and to live soberly and righteously in the present age. It's not legalism, it's called sanctification. It's called becoming more like him, his shaping influence in our hearts and in our Live. So it's, in other words, that, that kind of statement, it's not dangerous. That's not us getting into a place where we're about to be overcome with religiosity and Phariseeism. It's just to reiterate something that's so obvious in Scripture. And it's this. Of the many glorious prerogatives and freedoms of the Christian, ignoring God's commands isn't one of them. Right? He, he instructs us in the way that we should go, and he expects his people to follow him. That's why Jesus said, um, if you love me, you'll what? You'll obey me. Not as a taskmaster, but as a glad-hearted response of trust in the one who has saved us. God's holy love claims every part of our lives. The next point in your notes is this. God's holy love will tear us away from destructive pursuits. I wonder how many in this room have experienced that tearing, that gracious 
tearing us away from what was destroying us. And we kept holding on and he pulled until our skin came off, right? He pulled because it mattered. He pulled because we were, we were headed toward destruction and he decided he would rescue us. I thank God, I hope you do. I hope you have experiences like this as a Christian. I thank God for painful conviction in the course of my Christian life. I'm so glad sometimes I didn't ask for him to find me and he came anyway. That's the grace of God. And yet the way of wisdom, and we're going to talk about this in coming weeks. We're going to start a series in Proverbs just two weeks from now. The way of wisdom, friends, is don't presume that you're always going to be able to see the way of escape. You know, saw it last time, I'll probably see it next time. Let's head on in, right? No, don't presume upon the grace and mercy of God that you're going to see the way of escape or that maybe you're going to see it, but maybe next time you're not going to want it. And you're going to press forward into self-destructive mode. Don't presume that you're going to get out before any real damage is done. Again, we'll talk about that more in a couple weeks. In his love, friends, this point is this. God will fight to make us holy. He will fight to claim us as his own faithful people. But there's something else. And it's even connected to what we were praying about and Hannah was leading us to pray about in just a moment. Often, skeptics of the Christian faith will pit God's love against God's judgment, right? How, the question is often asked, how could a holy or how could a loving God, and then they choose some example in the Old Testament, for example, you know, like how could a loving God bury the Egyptian army underneath a wall of water? How would a loving God ever do that? Friends, the, the main acts of God's salvation in the Bible, the Exodus, the cross, and Revelation, the main acts of God's salvation are acts of salvation through judgment. It's how God saves. He, he puts his foot on the serpent's head and that's the rescue of his people you think about what what are the people praying for god's people praying for in the book of revelation revelation chapter six they're saying how long how long this this world system killed all of us the martyrs how long before you avenge our blood upon the earth and god doesn't say hey you've misunderstood the nature of this thing what does he say he says in a little while in a little while, you put this robe on. In a little while, justice will come and I'll rescue my people. God comes in the book of Revelation. Jesus comes through the skies in business mode. Right? There's a sword metaphorically coming out of his mouth and his eyes are on fire. This is not a good day for evil. This is not a good day for injustice and for those who have perpetrated violence. God doesn't sweet talk oppressors. Doesn't sweet talk abusers and those who push down the vulnerable. You come into the early chapters of the book of Exodus and you overhear a couple of things going on. You overhear whips cracking and the whips are cracking over the backs of God's bride. And this is not okay. And the first sound you hear almost at the very beginning of Exodus is this. Exodus 2. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor and they cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw, and God 
knew. And that word, God knew, means bad days are coming for Israel's oppressors. God knew is bad, is a bad day for Pharaoh. Because he comes, right? And God doesn't come to Egypt ready to win friends and influence people. That, that is not his mode of entry. He is not tiptoeing around for strategic advantage. He comes with flare guns. He comes with fireworks. He comes in the sky and he is announcing on day one, he's announcing his intention. He goes straight to the top office through Moses. He looks at the top guy and he says, let my people go. Trust me, it goes well for you if you let them go. We can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way, but I'm not leaving without my bride. And that's what happens. He leaves. He goes the hard way, but he ends up leaving, as he said, with his people, his covenant people. My wife and I are, are reading a book together to learn about the trauma of domestic violence and, and what it looks like to be redemptive responders, both personally as well as in the life of the church. And in our Friday reading just this week, the authors, Justin and Lindsay Holcomb, they, they let the reader see, and many of the people who are reading this book presumably are those who are living in the midst of domestic violence. And they're coming alongside and they're just saying, you know God is against this. You know, you've not done anything to earn this. This is not okay. God is with you. God is on your side. Justice has your back, right? God wants to run and he wants to protect you. He wants you safe and he's just showing you an avalanche of scripture that shows you the heart of God for you in the midst of this. And then Paula and I went over into scripture and we read Psalm 18 and saw it in a different way. And you see in Psalm 18, it says right at the top, it tells you what's going on, what's the backdrop, what's the context and it's David, and he's running from Saul, and Saul is tracking him and hunting him, and he's oppressing him. And David says, I'm going down. I'm going down. He says this, the ropes of death are wrapped around me. Right, what, a, what an image of oppression. What a picture. The ropes of death are wrapped around me. I called to the Lord in my distress and cried to my God for help. And he heard my voice. And here's the picture of God's response to the groaning of David. Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the mountains trembled. They shook because he burned with anger. Smoke rose from his nostrils. That his is God. God's nostrils are smoking. And con consuming fire came out of God's mouth, coals were set ablaze by it. What's David's imagery? He's oppressed, he's afflicted, someone is, is bringing violence to his doorstep and he says, I can't get out, the ropes are around my legs, please help me. And God, the picture that David thinks of, of God, is not a meek and lowly lamb. Not in Psalm 18. You know what he was in Psalm 18? It's a fire-breathing dragon. That's the picture David thinks of. You can feel the tremor under your feet as you read Psalm 18, and the tremor, the psalmist says, is the tremor of the shaking and burning anger of God. He's not cool with injustice. He doesn't look the other way. In the midst of trauma, we have brothers and sisters in this room, not just around the world, 
not just in our city. We are brothers and sisters in this room who need to know, one, God's tenderness toward the vulnerable and the afflicted and need to know he's not okay with the oppression of the vulnerable. So much so that David says, that truth needs music, and he sets it, and he says, hands it to the choir, and he says, let's sing this. We need to hear this truth. God's love, number one, is fierce. Two, God's love is full. God's love is full. It's comprehensive. It, it totally covers all of our lives. You think about what is the Bible. It's not just a collection of stories that are uh, disconnected and living in different times and periods different events that take place in ancient history. The Bible's a love story. One of our favorite books to read to our kids, especially when they were really young, was the Jesus Storybook Bible. Maybe many of you have read it to your children. We read it over and over. I even looked at it last night, and the thing is just broken up. We've read through it so many times. And I love the way it begins. Almost at the very beginning, Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author, writes this. The Bible isn't a book of rules, or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. I told you about that time where Scholars at the Gospel Coalition assembled this question and said, okay, we want all of you to answer this question. In one sentence, what is the story of the Bible? What is the Bible in one sentence? And there were a number of really helpful, great answers, but one of them was very brief, and it was just simply this. Three words, uh, six words. Kill the dragon, get the girl. (laughs) Kill the dragon, get the girl. That's the story of the Bible. This rescue plan is comprehensive. He gets the dragon. He gets the girl. You come to Revelation and what's going on? There's a wedding. There's a feast. He got the girl. The dragon's gone, right? Renewal. What what began in the Garden of Eden ends in this, this city garden, the New Jerusalem. And here's this comprehensive coverage. It covers all of our deepest needs. Number one, underneath this point, knowing sin would own you, the Father planned to save you. Knowing sin would own you, the Father planned to save you. Why do we have passages like like Ephesians chapter one? It says this, it's on the screen. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in love before him, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. That's God deciding in advance, it's going to be a mess out there, I'm going to save. That's what I'm going to do. You come over in Ephesians chapter 2, maybe more familiar passage. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. Why do we have passages like that in our Bibles? These passages are there, friends, to keep you from yawning in worship. These passages are there to prompt a collective wow, a collective 
oh, it's, it's that rich, it's that full, it's that amazing to prompt a life of worship before God. These passages come together essentially to say, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, to say, Matt, you wouldn't have figured this out on your own. The end would not have been good if God waited for me to make the first move in my salvation. He'd still be waiting. He makes the first move. Grace takes the initiative. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Sin was too strong for me. I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about you. Sin was too strong for you. It's too strong for you. You couldn't get out on your own. You couldn't will yourself out of those chains. You needed salvation. You didn't need more commands. If somebody's dead and you shout, get up, or you whisper, get up, the end result is not materially different in either case. The person is dead. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, and somebody came and made you alive, brought you to life. Your ears were open, your eyes were open. You walked outside blinking your way out of the darkness like Lazarus, and how did I get here? Next point, knowing sin's cost, the son came to pay your penalty. Our salvation is the work of the triune God, right? What does scripture say about the cross? It says that it's a display of God's love. God, Romans chapter five, verse eight, God commended or displayed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me ask you, Christian friend, where do you look when you want assurance that God loves you? Do you look at your circumstances? Do you look at your checkbook? Do you, if you look anywhere besides the cross, your assurance is gonna go up and down like the stock market. You're never gonna know which way is up. He loves me not, he loves me. He loves me not, he loves your, your assurance is gonna rise and fall like crazy, right? A great hymn was, was discovered and inspired by something that was found right after World War II. They were looking through the area that was devastated by the, the war and apparently someone who had been hiding in a basement, hiding from the Gestapo, during the Holocaust, and after the regime fell, the Nazi regime fell, these words were discovered etched on a wall in a basement in Cologne, Germany. It read this way, I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in love even when I feel it not. I believe in God even when he is silent. Suffering will test your faith, won't it? If you try to derive your assurance of God's love for you by the circumstances that greet you on any given Tuesday, your assurance is going to falter. It's going to falter, right? The, the cross, friends, is the better way. When God seems silent, the cross is never silent. The cross has been shouting for 2,000 years. What's it been shouting? Romans 5.8, he loves you. He loves you, Romans 8, what is the cross shouting? He gave up his own son, how would he not freely give you all things? He didn't spare his son. The cross has been shouting, the cross has been saying for 2,000 years, all who look to Jesus will live. Look and live, look here and live, look and know. Let me ask you this morning, are you looking and living? Are you looking to the one place where you can get assurance, the one place where you can get acceptance before a holy God? Run to Christ. Trust in what he has done on the cross. Look and live. 
Knowing sin would own you, the Father planned to save you. Knowing sin's cost, the Son came to pay your penalty. Third, knowing sin's power, the Spirit came to live in you. I need to save some thunder here because this is where we're going next week. But here, here's the idea. What you see here is, again, comprehensive coverage. The Father thought it. The Son bought it. The Spirit wrought it, right? The Father planned. The Son purchased. The Spirit applies it. The rescue operation of the triune God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has not, Christian friend, just made you savable. It has saved you. (laughs) It saved you. God's love is fierce. God's love is full. Finally, God's love is forever. God's love is forever. I I considered um, using as my outline this morning lines from a modern, um, well-known work of poetry, and it was going to be something like this. Point number one, he's never going to give you up. Point number two, he's never going to let you down. Point number three, he's never going to run around and desert you. And uh, before getting to points four and five, I kind of stopped and thought, that's a really dumb idea. I think I'm, some of you are like, dumb idea? That would have been a better outline than the one you've served up right here. It's actually encouraging to me how short-lived that idea was. Uh, So I'm making progress, right? Um, Here's the truth of it. We're brought into God's forever family. And there's no way you're ever going to end up outside. So I think some of the most meaningful words to the saints throughout history are, he will never leave you or forsake you. Rich truth, right? This is in your notes. By the Spirit and through the Son, we call him Father. This is jaw-dropping. You read through the Bible, you don't get the assumption that everybody just gets to call God Papa or call him Father. It's not true. It was, it was mind-blowing. It, was, it turned heads when Jesus prayed to my Father. J- Jackie Kennedy was pregnant with with John Jr. during her husband's presidential campaign, which means that once he came into the Oval Office, John Jr. was born in the White House, basically. He, he lived and grew up right there in his early years in the White House. And his mom didn't want photographers all around the White House taking pictures of the baby as he grew and then toddler as he grew. She's like, I want him to have as much as we possibly can a normal life. I want him crawling around and not people just snapping photos of everything that he's doing. I want him to take steps, and we're the only ones who saw it, right? So she said, no photographers. Well, there was one day when she was out of town, and photographers were allowed in, and this classic photo was taken. So he called that place, that's the Resolute Desk, the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office, and he called that my house under there. And that was his, that was his secret door. And nobody else got to stick their head out of that secret door but him, right? Because everybody else who comes into that office calls the man behind the desk Mr. President. But he calls him what? Dad. (laughs) Daddy. Changes the whole nature of what's possible, right? There's a familiarity. There's a welcome. Of course it's your house down there, right? You belong here. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, was once asked, what is a Christian? And he said, the richest answer I know to the question, what is a Christian, 
is the Christian is one who has God as his father. It's an awesome, awesome thing. You read the Bible from cover to cover and that comes as a surprise. You do meet him as the almighty creator, the one who speaks the world into existence. You meet him as the righteous judge, as the lawgiver, as the conqueror, right? And then you come in, you continue to read into the New Testament and there's this mind-blowing privilege that opens up before you. And that is that we call the one who is the almighty God, the creator of the ends of the earth, who spoke creation into existence, We call the one who is worshipped by angels and knows the end from the beginning, Father. We call him Father, and this Father loves us forever in Christ. Never forsakes us and never leaves us. George Matheson was a famous hymn writer in his time. He was engaged to be married when he went blind. And uh, rather than face life married to a blind man, the young lady called off the engagement. And so brokenhearted, Matheson wrote a hymn and he found solace only in God. And these are the opening words of the hymn that he wrote after she said, we're not getting married. Opening words. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. Christian friend, scripture is full of God's words of love and assurance toward his children. And just like any good father doesn't tell his children, I love you once, but over and over and over again, he says it when they want to hear it, he says it when they don't want to hear it, right? He says it before they can enunciate a single word when they're a baby, and he says it when he can barely speak at the end of his life, when he's when he's straining at the end of his days. He fills their ears, their minds, their hearts with this truth. I love you, I'm proud of you, I'm for you, I delight in you, my pleasure is in you, you're the apple of my eye. That's how God talks to his people all throughout the Bible. Some of you maybe haven't thought about that enough. You haven't thought about it lately. Others of you, you came in the room yearning to hear this simple truth that we learned on day one. He loves me. He loves me. As is, he loves me. God the Father, I want to say to you, Christian friend this morning, he loves you. He formed you in your mother's womb. All your distinctives, your personality, your wit, the way you think, the way you talk, the way you process life, your fingers, your toes, all intricately woven by God himself. He loves you. He sent his son to take your blame. He loves you. He sent his son so that he could bring you into his forever family. He adopted you. He's never going to send you out. You're co-heirs with Jesus. You're going to inherit the world, right? On your first days as a brand new believer, the moment you put your faith in Jesus, you came out dripping from the baptistry. And who was it that held your fingers and taught you to take your first steps as a Christian? It was the Father. He was there. He delights in you. If you have a father or had a father who didn't, if you had a father who berated you and insulted you, your, your, your father in heaven doesn't and never will. You have a father in heaven who listens. You have a father in heaven who says, cast all your cares. I want to hear all of your cares every day. I want to hear it all. Nothing's too small. I want to hear everything, big and small, joys and pains, 
Nothing's unimportant. Tell me everything. This is in your notes. This father will always love you and he will never leave you. As Christians, I think we, we rob ourselves of the greatest blessing when we act like it's childish to desire to hear the words, I love you, from God. Like we've, the problem, we've gone and grown up, right? We've gone and grown up and we, we think we don't need that anymore. If God says we need it and if he continues to say it in his word, you need it. I need it, right? There was a, a, a debate <clears throat> several years ago between a neo-Darwinian atheist, Christopher Hitchens, very articulate voice for atheism, and pastor, Douglas Wilson. And at one point in the debate, this is televised, and, and you can see it on video, in a video called Collision. <clears throat> and there's this one moment that we've watched as a family a number of different times, because they're going at it, and there's not like a 15-minute uh, uninterrupted statement followed by a 15. They're, they're just going at it, right back and forth. The microphones are hot, and it's back and forth. They're sitting down, and Hitchens is on a roll. He's got the floor, and Christopher Hitchens is denouncing how utterly infantile the Christian faith is. And he says, it's a system where you're always the child and never grown up. You're always dependent. And Wilson just leans in. As he's on a roll, he doesn't stop. Wilson leans in and he says, yes. And Hitchens says, he's always there. He says, always there. <laughs> he never leaves. He never leaves. He leans into his mic. And Hitchens looks out at the crowd, kind of not even paying attention to Wilson, and he says, out to a crowd of college students. He says, who wants that kind of existence? And there's Wilson next to him with his hand straight up in the air. You weren't designed to live in this world fatherless without a heavenly father who is absolutely perfect. You know, as parents, you always wonder, right? You have the conversation and wonder what's going to be his or her first word. Are they going to say, you know, Shoe, are they going to say no? Are they, what, what's going to be the first word they say? For the Christian, that is already decided in advance. Romans chapter 8, God sends his spirit into our hearts to teach us as Christians our very first word. If you're a Christian, the first word the Holy Spirit taught you to say is Abba. In other words, God said, I want, Holy Spirit, I want you to teach this child. He's mine. She's mine. He's got a father who will love him forever. When it comes to mission, we're the ones with the news that there's a father who loves this world. There's a father who picks us up and adopts us as his own. That's the news. That's why we're so motivated to go out and tell, tell the news of the gospel. The question for us is, do you live? Do you minister? Do you do mission as a slave? Or do you do it free, glad-hearted as a son who delights in the father's family and the welcome embrace that you've experienced? Are we engaging in ministry because we hear a whip cracking behind us? Or because the father invited us in to join him in his work? I heard a pastor tell a story about how many years ago, some of you might have heard of this, it, it will date all of us if you know, about the Promise Keepers Conference back in like the 80s and 90s. It was a big thing, they would fill stadiums with men and they would talk about what does it look like to, to live in obedience to God and find our purpose in him and in his word. So massive stadiums, and this particular pastor was, was there in the stadium with a number of his um, 
church friends and elders and staff. And at one point, uh, the person who was leading out front from the stadium floor said, I want to call all the pastors in the room, all the pastors in this stadium to come out from where you are and file down here and get up on the stage. And he recoils at that, given his personality. He's like, the last thing on earth I wanted to do is walk down there and get up in front of all these people. And he, he resisted it, but his friend said, listen, you've got to go down there. You've been asked to go down there. This is, this is for you. And so he walks down and he says, then we stood up there, about 1,000 pastors stood up there looking out at an audience of 45,000 people who said, we love you. In his words, somehow the pure volume and strength of that affirmation got behind my shell and I began to bawl. <laughs> the day your life changes is the day the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit say, we love you, and you believe it. There is no yawn over the truth of the love of God the Father in Scripture. You come to the very end, toward the end of the Bible, And what do you hear? You hear the wonder of this apostolic announcement from the Apostle John. And I'll close with this. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. 